everyone. Welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to a special episode of the number one EU politics podcast. Why is it special? Because I sat down on Monday evening with Jeremy Hunt, the UK Foreign Secretary, at a crucial point in the Brexit negotiations, and we thought you needed to hear about what he has to say ahead of our regular Thursday time slot. We spoke to Hunt about a lot of other issues, including Huawei, Facebook, what he's up to in trying to bring peace in Yemen, and how he is trying to ensure that the Iran nuclear deal continues. But we also spoke a lot about Brexit. Obviously, the Brexit negotiator Steve Barclay has been here in recent days. There's obviously a countdown to a very difficult vote, let's say, yet again at the end of the month in the UK Parliament. And of course, there's been that breakaway group from the UK Labour Party. Hunt talks about all of that and more. Why is it important? Because Hunt is a voice for moderation within the UK Conservative Party, and he's trying to put an olive branch out to Remainers and find a way to sail this deal through the UK Parliament. So have a listen, and then keep your eye on the rest of the Brexit debate, which is surely only going to get hotter between now and March 29. Joining me now on EU Confidential is Mr. Global Britain, aka the Foreign Secretary of Her Majesty's Government, Jeremy Hunt. Welcome to the podcast, Minister. Good evening, Ryan. Pleasure to be here. It is indeed. Now, you had a long time running the National Health Service. So I was wondering, how does the new job compare to the slings and arrows of the old job? Uh, Do you miss the old job at all? Well, curiously, there are aspects of the old job that I miss very greatly um, in that job. Incidentally, although it's uh, not global Britain, it is the fifth largest organisation in the world, the National Health Service, um, second only to the... American and Chinese militaries and McDonald's and Walmart. So it's a huge organisation and you make decisions that affect people's lives every day, like whether you're going to make a new cancer drug available. So there's a directness to what you do in terms of the impact on on people's lives uh, that is very motivating. Um, But, you know, what is fascinating about this role is the fact that you're dealing with such important global issues and really the changing shape of the world and we are in a world which has benefited from a very stable international order that was essentially set up by uh, the UK and the US after the Second World War and has stood the test of time but is now changing and for the first time in 10 years time the largest economy in the world won't be a democracy. That's never happened in our lifetimes before. And so that is a massive change in the global order. And people are figuring out what does that mean. So in terms of Britain's role, uh, we have, if you like, two things. We've got to think about Brexit, but we've got to think about all these other things as well. You do have a day job. Sometimes it's easy to forget when you look at the the media headlines each day. But speaking of that international order, we're speaking just after the Munich Security Conference, and you're off to give a big speech in Berlin. And it just reminds me that it's a really precarious time for that order. It sometimes feels like there are not only big strategic threats from non-Western countries, but sometimes the West itself is kind of eating itself alive. What is your pitch when you go to to Germany about how we're going to keep it together? Well, first of all, what I say is that the strongest alliances in history are the alliances based on values and not just on transactional convenience. So if you take an incident like the Scripple poisoning uh, last March in Salisbury, Russia thought that Britain 
would be weak and isolated in the middle of Brexit. We wouldn't have allies that would come to our defence. But actually, we ended up with 153 Russian spies being expelled from 28 countries. And that was because, basically, all those countries thought we cannot allow a country to use chemical weapons on our soil, and this is just wrong. And so it was, in a way, an easy alliance to pull together, even though, of course, it was a lot of work to make it happen. And so when I'm asked what's Britain's role going to be post-Brexit, I say, well, you know, we shouldn't overestimate our power. We're not a superpower. We don't have an empire. Uh, But we shouldn't underestimate our influence either. And we happen to be blessed with some of the best connections of pretty much any country. Our alliance with the United States, our partnership with our European neighbours, our links to the Commonwealth family. Uh, These give us a huge amount of links and, and I want us to be an invisible thread linking the democracies of the world and making us stronger to face the challenges that we face in the years ahead. Because one thing's for sure, we'll be stronger if we stand together than if we stand apart. And I think Britain has a really important global role in bringing those democracies together with all those connections and making sure that we're up for the challenges ahead. Now, on that front, if I can link three quite different issues, but which I think speak to your point, you've just been at this Iran summit that took place in Poland. One of the reasons you went was that you were able to speak about Yemen and help deal with the humanitarian and other situations there. And also, I noticed you are one of the few leaders, ministers, who's been really actively communicating about the Nigerian election. And I think that's striking because that's the biggest election Africa's ever had. And if you looked around Europe, it's almost as if it didn't happen in terms of how people speak about it. Uh, So are those some of the examples where you want to be able to have that constructive role and not get bogged down in Brexit? Yes, and thank you for talking about the Nigerian elections because, you know, from Britain's point of view, Nigeria is a good friend of ours. We have strong links with Nigeria. Um, But obviously there's a sensitivity when it's uh, a former colony. But we have a responsibility to help countries as they transition to self-governing democracies and what's happened in many countries in Africa is that you have parliamentary democracy which is essentially inherited from the Brits on the British model but the crucial thing about a free country and a healthy democracy isn't just electing MPs to represent you in parliament it's the peaceful transfer of power from one party to another and that's why when you look at what's happening in Nigeria it's really important, not just for Nigeria, but for the whole of Africa, to see that Africa's largest democracy is capable of doing what India has now been doing for many years, which is the peaceful transfer of power. And if you look in, in Africa at the moment, you can see there are countries where that has been possible and countries where it hasn't. Um, so obviously we're concerned that the elections are being put off, but also we want to give Nigeria support and we want to tell them what what Brits, Europeans, Aussies all know that actually it's not that big a deal when power transfers from one political party to another. In fact in many ways it's healthy, it's how democracies renew themselves and we want to give them encouragement on that journey. Now I wanted to chat a little bit about technology and national security. Huawei has been in the news a lot recently 
And now the National Cybersecurity Center in the UK has said, you know what, this is a risk, but we think it's a manageable risk. And I was wondering whether you consider that sort of judgment is now settling that debate and it's time to move on, or will there be ongoing reviews and this is going to remain a a live issue? So that particular news report was a leak, and I haven't actually seen the original report it's talking about, so I can't comment on whether it's accurate or not. But let me talk about the bigger issue about Chinese investment. So you have this country that is growing really fast. Uh, It's lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. It's a fantastic thing for the world that China is growing. And we shouldn't forget that even at the point at which the Chinese economy becomes as big as the US economy, their GDP per head will only be 25% of US GDP per head. So they're going to be saying at that point they want to grow even more. And why not? You know, they have every right to be as as, as wealthy and prosperous as, as the rest of us. The issue is about Chinese investments all over the world. We don't yet really understand whether those investments could be used at some time in the future for strategic or political purposes by the Chinese government, because the Chinese government has much more control over Chinese companies than Western governments have over Western companies. And that's really where we need reassurance from China, because of course the best possible outcome for for China and for the West is if we were able to trade completely freely with each other without giving a second thought to what might happen if the Chinese government had a strategic impairment, a strategic imperative to do things in a different way. So we're feeling our way with China at the moment. Um, We think that a good, strong trading relationship is a very healthy thing. But we need to understand that it's not going to be part of a a strategic objective that is different to simply trade and economic exchanges. Mm -hmm. Is there any sort of testing of different responses within the Five Eyes Alliance? Or is this sort of a purely British decision? Because you've got Australia and the US out there sort of going for the full ban, New Zealand going for some tough restrictions. I honestly don't know where Canada's at, but it feels like there are different responses and that might be healthy overall, but I wonder if it's coordinated at at all. Well, we all sovereign countries take our own decisions and we have a very robust system which we are very confident in and it's run by GCHQ, who are you know, well-beating in their technology. So obviously we'll listen to what they say very carefully, but you know, the closest intelligence relationship in the world is between the Five Eyes partners. And so we obviously need to take into account what they say as well, because we do have to have a coordinated approach. The second tech issue, and we're getting close to the Brexit questions now, is that the evidence and as well as some accusations where we haven't seen all the evidence yet has been piling up against Facebook to the point where some people now say that the way political advertising is used on Facebook is a national security issue and and that's been thrown around in the Brexit referendum and so on and I don't mean to get it bogged down in that one example but is there a point where you have to get involved from a national security angle and how we deal with these tech giants? Uh, Yes there is and Facebook has a role because they should be on the side of the angels in this one. I mean, I'm a great believer in technologies. I know you are a politicos, and this is transforming the way we live, and it's a force for good. Um, But we also know that those tech giants, if they turn their minds to things, can solve problems really quickly. And so we need the cooperation of 
uh, Facebook. But I think there's something else that we need to recognise, which is that uh, as open societies, our democratic processes are exposed. And at the moment, we are seeing closed societies interfere very freely in electoral processes across Europe, United States, um, New Zealand, and these are things that is really completely unacceptable. It should be a total international taboo for one country to interfere in another country's electoral processes. So we need cooperation with uh, Facebook, but actually we need to do some diplomatic work to make it clear to countries that want to interfere in other countries' elections that the price is going to be too high. Now on to big, bad, often boring Brexit. I guess straight off the bat, we've got this news from Honda where it seems they would be shutting down their Swindon plant and it comes on the back of some bad news from Nissan as well. And some of the Japanese free trade negotiators, the people you're working with to roll over the agreement there, don't seem super happy. So I guess my question to you is, are Britons now starting to pay the price for this kind of counting down game with the Brexit negotiations and can it go on or does there need to be a softening of how Britain's approaching this situation? We need to resolve this as quickly as we can. I mean I think most people would say that they've been surprised and impressed with the resilience of the British economy up till now but whichever side of the Brexit debate you're on, Mm -hmm. making a decision like Brexit involves a period of uncertainty and in particular the two years of the Article 50 period. We need to resolve this for the sake of industry, actually for the sake of the sanity of the population of Britain and indeed of Europe. We need to resolve this as quickly as we can. I think there is an end in sight. I think we can now see how we can get a majority through the House of Commons. It does require a change to the Irish backstop, and that's what I'm here in Brussels talking about. But I think it's massively in everyone's interests to get back to stability. I can't comment on the Honda decision because I think they're going to make an announcement. But I think what we are seeing is that there's economic uncertainty that's not related to Brexit. But of course, there are worries about Brexit as well. And that's it feels why. like they might, well, I don't know whether it's the Japanese government or an individual company, but you can imagine a scenario where any of those entities want to try and put the squeeze on Britain, where they feel like you're vulnerable in the next few weeks. So we're going to try and squeeze more out of a trade uh, rollover. We're going to try and squeeze more in terms of state subsidies. Uh, are you willing to sort of hold the line on that stuff? Or? Well, of course we will hold the line. But what I would say to all those companies is, you know, think long term. Britain has got the most extraordinary prospects in the future. We are the tech hub of Europe, the life sciences hub of Europe. We've got three or four of the world's top ten universities in the UK. Uh, We've got the most entrepreneurial business culture in Europe. It's a great place to do business and uh, we will find a way to trade in a friction-free way with our neighbours in Europe uh, because it's in their interests as well as ours and there's a process that we are going to have to go through to get there. But I would say if you've got big investments in Britain they're going to be amongst the parts of the world that give you the best possible returns in the decades ahead. And speaking of friction-free trade, that brings us straight to the backstop and the Irish border. The Parliament has been very clear in the UK. They want concrete concessions on that. The EU has been equally clear that they're not willing to go and renegotiate the fundamentals of that backstop. So I wonder what you think the plausible 
landing point is. It seems like you have to live with less than a wholesale change to the system, but you can't just get a few I's dotted and T's crossed. You need something else, presumably. Yes, it's definitely more than a clarification that Parliament is asking for. And I th- the way I would put it is that I think the withdrawal agreement describes the backstop as temporary. And what Parliament is saying is, can you define temporary? Because at the moment, the Attorney General's legal advice is that there are situations he thinks it's unlikely, but there are situations in which you could be trapped indefinitely in the customs union. And I think the point of agreement between the UK, Ireland and the EU is that no one wants to return to more border infrastructure on the island of Ireland. Our commitment in the UK to the Belfast Good Friday Agreement is unconditional. We grew up with the horrors of, of, of the Troubles and no one wants to go back to that. But what is difficult for Parliament is the idea that that automatically means membership of the customs union and the European Union's tariff zone effectively. And that's because MPs say, well, you know, we voted for sovereignty and uh, therefore we want to have our own trade policy and indeed that's the policy of the government. So my judgment about this is it's uh, the kind of situation where if this was 28 EU members sitting around a table the solution is fairly straightforward and we would find a way through. Of course, Because you'd be in the club. They'd be treating you nicer, basically. Because we'd be in the club. That's absolutely right. Because it's 27 remaining members and one leaving, there is a complexity in this. But actually, there is a lot of goodwill. Yeah. I don't meet any EU members who say that they don't want to have the best of relations with Britain post-Brexit. Uh, I'm really surprised. Why wouldn't some supplier of technology come forward and say, hey, look, I've got the solution here. I mean, I guess that's where I'm a little bit sceptical of sort of alternative arrangements in quotation marks, is that we haven't seen any technology on the table up till now. And that would presumably reassure people a lot if they could see that in in working order or deployed in some way. I think the thing about technology is that most people think that it will make it possible to do this. Some people are sceptical about whether it can do it at the moment. Some people think that the technology we have now, without any new technology at all, could make it possible. And I think, you know, some people look at, for example, the Swiss-French border, which is, you know, Switzerland outside the customs union, and and the way they avoid checks on the border is end-to-end checks. So the checks are done in the factories at both Mm -hmm. ends, rather than at the point of the border crossing. But I think the truth is that there is disagreement on both sides. So if you're going to go for that solution, you need to have an arbitration mechanism that resolves those disagreements. And we need to keep an open mind because actually this could be the solution that's a win-win for everyone in the long run. Now, another potential boost for the government is the breakaway of the seven Labour MPs to be an independent Labour group that was announced earlier on Monday. I wonder what is the sort of impact you think that might have on the Brexit debate? And also just more generally, what is it like to govern in an environment where sometimes the opposition doesn't really seem like it's all there? Like they don't, it doesn't feel like they're opposing you all the time. Well, I think the interesting thing with the Brexit debate is that to date, most of the media focus has focused on splits in the Conservative Party. But actually, something that's been true all along is the splits in the Labour Party are much, much more profound because most of the Conservative Party unites around what you would call a moderate Eurosceptic 
position. And there are variants on that, but the heart of the Conservative Party is in that middle place, whereas Labour is actually divided between fanatical Remainers who are intent on a second referendum and, and changing the outcome of Brexit, and people representing Leave voting constituencies where they know that would be political and electoral suicide. And it's much harder if you were to imagine, and I obviously don't like doing this exercise, but if you were to imagine a Jeremy Corbyn government and to ask yourself how would he reconcile those two positions, the answer is you can't. You cannot reconcile Leave voting Labour constituents with passionate Remain voting MPs. And so that's what I think this has brought to light. And so why is this relevant to negotiations? Because Labour aren't in power. I think it shows that counting on Labour to support a version of the deal that then means it's going to get through Parliament is not going to work. And Was uh, that one of your messages to ministerial colleagues on this visit, that they should steer clear of sort of being tempted into that thinking about Labour? I haven't uh, had particular discussion about the, the seven defections from Labour, but I do think that the point about, uh, you know, people have said you should pivot to a customs union and then you can get Labour support, but of course it isn't just the one vote on the withdrawal agreement. There's probably around 50 votes that we're going to need in order to get the various bills through post the approval of the withdrawal agreement. Which brings us to the ERG, the the Conservative Party's own internal hassle there. They, They almost feel like they're the best whipped machine at the moment in the whole parliament. Do you think they can ever be satisfied with one of those sort of midway landing zones we just talked about on the backstop? I believe they will be, yes. They, they, they recognise that in any divorce settlement there are compromises, but they're simply saying that's fine and we're happy to have the compromises, but we don't want our hands tied for the future. We want to be able to start negotiations about the future relationship with a blank sheet of paper. And providing they're satisfied they have that flexibility, then I'm confident that they will go along with whatever it is that Theresa May comes back with. Now, I'm sure our listeners don't want to get bored in differently named amendments and things like that before the vote at the end of the month. But one new one that jumped out at me was a motion, uh, an amendment floated by Peter Kyle, where he's saying, I'm willing to back the deal, but this should be confirmed by a second referendum. As a supporter of the deal who once upon a time once said it could be a good idea to have a second referendum. Could you ever imagine the government going along with that if that's what it took to get the deal through Parliament? No, I couldn't. And and let me explain what I said, which is about, from memory, about five days after the referendum result. And I basically said, we voted to leave the EU. We haven't voted on the shape of the deal. And that needs democratic endorsement, either through a second referendum or a general election. Well, we've now had that general election and Theresa May put her version of Brexit very squarely on the table and indeed it was surprisingly similar at the time to Labour's version of Brexit because both parties were saying they wanted to end free movement of people. So that's why I think we do now know the shape of Brexit that the British people want. Why do I think it would be profoundly wrong to have a second referendum? It is because we are one of the oldest parliamentary democracies in the world. I think second only to Iceland. And British people have a very, very strong sense that for all the failings of the political class, in the end, they do what the people tell them to do. And they know 
that the political establishment did not want Brexit. So they're looking at Brexit as a kind of test of our democratic credentials. Are we really a democracy in this country? Because we've just given you the biggest mm. test of all, which is we've asked you guys to do something that you really didn't want to do, and we're watching to see. So then you have to say to yourself, well, we have to leave the EU, we have to do what the British people told us to do, but we also have to bring the country together. And that means thinking about the 48% who didn't want to leave the EU. And we have to show them the Brexit that we're going to deliver delivers on the letter and the spirit of the referendum, but is not the Brexit of their worst nightmares. It's not a Brexit it's not a where punitive Brexit. It's not a Brexit where we pull up the drawbridge, where thousands of jobs are lost, uh, where we turn ourselves from Great Britain into Little England. It's not going to be that type of Brexit at all. It's going to be an open, outward-looking, optimistic, positive Brexit. That's the job now of my generation of politicians to deliver that positive outcome for Brexit and you know for me success will be in 10 years time if people who voted against Brexit people in that 48% are able to say do you know what actually it hasn't been as bad as I feared and actually the UK is flourishing and prospering. Jeremy Hunt thank you so much for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you very much Matt. That was UK Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt. Thanks for listening to this special episode of EU Confidential. We'll be back at our regular time on Thursday evening. Thanks for listening.